Thanks for listening to the James from Montana podcast, a podcast in which I interview experts in the tech industry with the goal of slowly uploading the collective consciousness of tech into the cloud. For more information on today's guest topic or how to be a guest yourself, visit jamesfrommontana.com forward slash podcast. I have with me Ternan DeBurka, engineer at Stanza, a company doing neat things in the SRE space. Tiernan is an itinerant dancer with a technology habit. He's worked on four continents for hyperscalers and nonprofits, from Google and Squarespace to the Special Olympics World Summer Games and Ebola response in West Africa. Tiernan has brought an enthusiasm for solving problems and a passion for solving those problems with computers. How are you, Tiernan? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I've never heard my bio read out. So we that bio is from the website. And so I struggled to achieve American levels of positivity when writing it. And so now having an American reading to me, I'm like, I got the voice right. I got that correct like, energy. Yeah, I feel good. Did I nail the American accent or? Yeah, no, I think you did. I think you did really well. I'm just glad I got my voice right. You know, that kind of, whenever we would do performance reviews in like big American companies and you're running the Irish department, you have to give a special speech to people who are not Americans. Which is like, <laughs> don't write in your performance review, I didn't too, did too badly, I suppose, in balance. Say, <laughs> I am a legend. And work everything in terms of I am a legend. Uh, a, a neat hack is actually get two people to write the performance review for the person beside each other. Like get, get people to write your friend's performance review and then sign it. Because That's you're amazing. much more positive about your friend than you are about yourself. And you need yeah. to do that kind of positive reframing to get whatever the American baseline level of confidence is when you're not an American. Anyway, we're great. off the rails I, already. The fact that the podcast has only been with U.S. guests so far, and I feel like you have this unique opportunity to be of Irish residency, um, and you're in tech in Ireland, right? So I yeah. want to know a little bit more about what tech is like in Ireland. I mean, obviously, there's a slight distinction even in just speaking. Sure. Uh, I mean, so uh, Ireland has a, a big tech tradition. Um, so early 80s, you have DEC, you have um, Apple, and they both started building computers here really early on. And that when I started, which would have been mid 90s, that we'd moved up the value chain as far as kind of tech support. So if you bought a Dell, in the mid nineties and you called somebody to find out why you couldn't get on the internet. The person answering the call was probably Irish. Uh, and then that moved up the value chain again. And you got into a lot of infrastructure and operations stuff. Uh, we now obviously have a pretty vibrant startup scene and we have lots of folks uh, doing lots of different work, but the, the rump or a lot of the work that's being done still in technology in Ireland is in infrastructure space. So you've got very, very large teams from Google and Amazon and Microsoft and Twitter and everybody else who are the kind of uh, global hyperscalers basically all have teams here. Uh, and so you have very, very kind of a very strong concentration of expertise for folks who've built data centers, who built infrastructure that are based in, our, in Dublin. Um, so, um, I mean, the company I work for is Stanza Systems. Uh, our CEO is Niall, Niall Murphy, who was the co-author of uh, the SRE book from Google and was, um, I think, in charge of SRE for, for Azure for a while. And, so there's a lot of like very heavy hitters in that space that's very common in Dublin. Like there's a reason that the EMEA SRE Con conference alternates between Dublin and somewhere else is basically it's 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 migrate, migratory pattern. So I did want to go into your you have you have a background in Google um, around 2005, right? Mm -hmm. They they do have this somewhat famous infamous document for postmortem culture from the SRE space. I mean. I've had it organically brought up to me many times. I feel like you were in that period of time in which it was written, right? I think what you, what you mean there is that there's this idea of a postmortem document, right? Or an after action report a bit that breaks down what's going on and, and, and introduces the blamelessness. Um, so it wasn't Google weren't the first people to approach a kind of blameless culture around operations, but it was my first experience with it. And so a key part again and again was that it's completely safe to uh, be part of a response to an incident, right? Like uh, one of the great uh, ideas was that this might be the most expensive piece of training the, the company has ever done for you. Why would we fire you now? There's a, Urs was the global head at the time of infrastructure. And for a long time, he owned the largest outage that Google had ever had. He deleted the google.com domain. And so it was a very convenient thing when he was being interviewed to say, 
well, do you think I should have been fired for causing the biggest outage? Well, if not, then why would I fire somebody who's, who's made a mistake? Uh, and so that kind of permeated a lot of how Google went about responding to incidents, both from an expectation of reliability, right? We, they, they really wanted to focus on highly reliable, highly available services. Um, it's pretty easy if you look at their business model to understand why they cared so deeply about this. It turns out that if you open a web page and there's an ad on it, you might click on the ad. If there's no ad, you will never click on that ad. You might come back and look at that web page again and see another ad. But like they're a run rate business. If any ad they don't serve you with lost revenue. And so it becomes yeah. very easy for it to permeate the entire culture of the company around that. So the best way to get the high, best reliability was to build great engineers and support them. Uh, where they needed to, they invented their own stuff. And that led to a whole lot of other innovations. But the core to the original idea that you were talking about is templated incident response, um, talk about what you did afterwards, understand why you're making the changes you're making, and make sure that you are more ready for that class of, of incident again. It used to be say that, you used to say that this incident could never happen again. The kind of, the current thinking is that the same incident doesn't ever happen twice and that you're more, uh, you're better off thinking in terms of uh, what can we do to be more resilient to this class of failure? Like, uh, what took us out isn't as important as if this thing fails again and this, like we lose a data center or we lose a service, what is our, what's graceful failure look like? What does resilience look like? How quickly can we recover? Um, does that make some sense? Yeah, absolutely. We're already deep into SRE topics, but I think for the listeners, we should back out just a little bit. Sure. So SRE, as you said, stands for Site Reliability Engineering. Um, and that is the approach to... Um, building reliable systems that Google uh, initiated and then the ideas from that propagated kind of across the network of companies that uh, Google alumni went from and then has mutated further. Um, but the, the kind of core idea originally was what if you took software engineering practices and applied them to infrastructure reliability? This is, I think, an incomplete telling of history. I think there was a lot of folks on the system side, side who were already quite keen on programmatic approaches and the DevOps community was coming up at the same time, but it's the meme that has really stuck and it's, it's, it's allowed us carve out a niche to be able to think about what's um, the best way to support folks who have to support your systems, right? So uh, it's important that we build a culture where you're not burning somebody out, where the person who happens to catch the page where the site catches fire is not the person who's catching hell afterwards, uh, that um, being able to prioritize and respond to outages by getting changes in the way software works onto the to-do list of the product sided software engineers or do the PRs themselves to, to, to get the, to change the behavior of the underlying software. It, in a, in a real sense, it gave you the opportunity to kind of even the playing field between um, the infrastructure and operations teams and the product teams, right? To be able to say, this is a collaboration and a par partnership in running software. At Google, the kind of one of the foundational myths uh, was that in theory, you could hand the pager back, right? Somebody can run their own software if, you're, if, they're, if they're not able to collaborate with an SRE team. Uh, in practice, that would happen very, very frequently. Like folks, folks like having a team that are really, really good at this doing that work. And that leads to a point where you can um, rely on the incremental improvement in how software is run. Um, to be able to say, a, a, great, a great way of thinking about this is, for example, you should have a max of one incident per shift. If you're on duty for eight hours, you can only respond with urgency a certain number of times. Consequently, you should try and ensure that whatever the level of service that you're planning to deliver with a piece of software and a network and all of the associated infrastructure can support that level of, of reliability. Because it turns out if the pager is going off every three minutes, all you're doing is pressing the button that says, don't page me anymore. You have no time for deep thought that is, oh, I wonder what caused this particular interaction? What's this intermittent failure? And Maybe I'll go do a flame graph of its memory, or this is the interaction between <laughs> this particular long running query and that. Right? So SRE is about this kind of discipline of so, uh, dis the, the tools of software engineering, discipline of scaling, 
I think about it as the industrialization of systems administration, right? Like it's no longer this idea that the sysadmin is the guy who sits in the corner and makes sure the email server and the one server you have is up. It's the team of folks who move from um, a boiler in the basement to citywide infrastructure that heats the city, right? You have this kind of upscaling of capacity and capability. And that's that's what SRE is about, to, to me anyway. I love that rule of thumb, one, one incident per shift, which I feel like is in deep contrast to at least the companies that I've worked for and the amount of like alarm bells that go off in an average shift. So there's a, there's a term which is feeding blood into the machine, right? And feeding blood into the machine is this idea that sure, the site is up, but the site is up because the person who's keeping the site up won't work here in six months. And you can't <laughs> really reasonably uh, attempt to do the things that Google was trying to do and that hopefully many kind of companies that with a sustainable long-term approach can do by doing that, right? You can't expect someone to be able to live on that adrenaline edge for a very long time. And in particular, that person can't contribute to improving the system. If all they're doing is rebooting things that have broken, they're not making the system any better. And it turns out that those folks who are at the call face, who really understand all the interactions, who really understand what code you're running, are folks that are in a great position to understand how to make the system better. And so obviously we, we could probably tilt into, I moved into a management role before I've been in my current role. And that part of the value of management in SRE and in infrastructure is to explain why you care about these people beyond a human sense, right? There's the, there's the, it's a really, that's a human being and I should be nice to them, but in like a base utilitarian sense, these are the folks who really understand how your system works. If your users are going to have a great time, these folks need to be able to contribute to making your site or your service or your, 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 whatever you're constructing better. And if you set yourself goals, like one page per shift, if you set yourself goals, like, um, don't be on call more than once a month, you can put people in a mental mindset um, to be able to do that. Uh, one of the, another great rule of thumb that comes out of the Google system is this idea of toil. And toil is the work you do that doesn't make the system any better, right? Um, if we're going to throw back to the mid-90s, changing tapes. Changing tapes needs to be done or you don't have a backup, right? And I think I've, I've just dated myself as older than anybody listening to this podcast. But there's work, work, that needs to, work that needs to be done that isn't going to make your service any better. It's just, it's just letting you kind of tread water. And then there's work which improves your service, maybe moving to uh, a better load balancing algorithm, ensuring that you, everything you've built is in infrastructure as code, being able to uh, war game out problems, being able to bring up sites closer to your co customers, being able to improve your instrumentation. These are all things that make the day-to-day -day life of both your users and the software engineers who are shipping that software better off. Google's rule was no more than 50% of your day-to-day -day work should be toil. So 50% of your work can be keeping the thing on the road, but 50% of your work should be making it better. Again, there's like the benevolent, oh my God, Google was so forward thinking. And then there's the more utilitarian, Google was doubling in size every 20 minutes. And so if it wasn't getting better, it was getting worse, right? If you're in a growth environment and you're not making every single thing that you can put your finger on a little bit smoother and a little bit faster, you're getting worse, right? If the traffic gets 50% more and you haven't gotten any better, you're 50% more in a hole. Like there's no, there's no kindness <laughs> in that. And so you can't run to a standstill in a growth environment. Um, and so when Google was in the like quintessential peak of its growth, because there was just so much going on, um, being able to think forwardly around, okay, we don't want folks to burn out because the only people who work in the world who understand how we do these things. And we want them to be able to build the systems that will mean that the next system happens, I think is hugely important. Uh, to give an example of probably my favorite example of extreme growth at Google was um, I was on a databases team for, or I was, I was in a team where one of the teams was the ads database team. And they had, and this was early on, and they were migrating to a new sharded database. It's all very clever, kind of classic sharding stuff. And the manager brought them into an office one morning and said, okay, this half of the team, you're staying on the, on the sharded database. This half of the team, you're building the sharded database we need after this sharded database. Because we looked at the growth rate this morning, 
And the thing we thought bought us two years buys us six months. And so the system that you've you've killed yourself building for the last six months, you have to ship in the next 90 days with half of the staff. (laughs) Team B, this gives you 90 days plus the run rate of the system you've just built (laughs) to come up with the next system. Uh, And we recommend that be arbitrarily scalable because we can't do this again. That's fantastic. That was the type of kind of comedy growth that Google was experiencing at the time. It's true hyper growth, right? Yeah. There's got to be a plethora of of stores that you have. Yeah, I mean, I kind of I want to be careful about not kind of overstating my importance, right? I was a cog in a machine that was rapidly growing. Um, I was part of the SRE team in Dublin. I was in uh, Belarusange in Brazil for six months, and I was in um, New York for a while. So I got to experience uh, kind of hilarious periods of growth answering a phone in dublin and them asking because one of the projects i was part of was a thing called office in a box and the premise of office in a box was that we didn't have time to think about how the infrastructure in milan would be different from the infrastructure in sao paulo so the only thing we wanted to know about an office was how many people worked in sales and how many worked in engineering and we had a little graph and if you said you had 50 people in sales and 200 people in engineering you got a medium. If you had whatever, 500 of these and 300 of these, you got a large. And there was a team of people, uh, some of which were based in, in the Dublin uh, data center, who were building these, off- these offices in advance. And so you would build what was a blank office in a box. And then the phone call would come in saying, we've opened the Tel Aviv office. How big is it going to be? It's going to be this big. Great. Ship those three flight cases to Tel Aviv. Plug in power, plug in data, press a button in, in Dublin or Mountain View. And four hours later, you had an office. Uh, It was an amazing, amazing piece of automation that obviously there were speed bumps and there's many kind of blood on the floor type type problems that happened around that. But uh, I remember we had bought a company in Munich called DMARC, I think it was. And I flew out on the Friday with a bunch of folks. And I was part of the team where we rolled, I think it was three racks in, plugged them in. And on Monday morning, everybody's on the Google domain and they have... Google creds and everything else, and you've done all the automation. And you know, you give back laptop A and you take laptop B, and that's how it works. And there's some amazing kind of that that type of they, these days because the growth has it hasn't slowed as such, but like they were already as big as they need to be in a lot of cases, and they've migrated anything that was in the office. Obviously, is now part of Google Apps. You demand like this is this is when everybody still had local mailboxes and things, and so it's less important. But they still have that type of ability to show up and onboard teams of people, but they now use it for acquisitions. So if you're acquired by Google, like the morning you're acquired by Google, your account works and you can print and you've got a laptop that is signed into the domain and everything else. So like they, they, they do amazing work in that space. I suppose kind of projects that I worked on when I was there, so, uh, socks, kind of, I think uh, lots of folks who are in the startup space kind of begin to have their compliance story right around the time they have a, they have a growth story. Yeah, 100%. And they feel kind of bitter about it. Why are you doing this to me? And as an infrastructure person, I've always really liked compliance. Because compliance is like me saying, do your job. Only it's the law, right? It's like, (laughs) it's a beautiful thing. Uh, And so uh, when we were at at Google, they passed Sparrance Oxley. And the real challenge was that, like, nobody knew what it meant. It happened, like, the text was changing onto your router. Uh, But it was all this idea of separation of, like, who could see data and when you could see it, all, all the things that Spartans actually is to, and trying to retrofit that to a system that was growing at the rate that it was growing was kind of, a, again, a kind of a hilarious set of challenges. Um, and you en- ended up hiving off parts of SRE so that you didn't leave all of SRE with access to everything because you had to be able to kind of meet these things because there were just too many people. Uh, and the other thing I was, I was part of, which was the, the response to the, to the Chinese security attack. Uh, a long time ago now, where uh, Google was attacked by a state actor and had to, functionally speaking, rebuild itself. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail because I can't remember what bits of those details have already come in. But there's been plenty of, plenty of spe- talks about it. But it was kind of pretty hilarious to watch as various folks inside the organization got a tap on the shoulder to disappear into a room. And the room was virtual. Like, you're like, well, that person's not doing any work on their project. And then 72 hours later, you get a tap on the shoulder and you're like, oh, I'm not doing any work on my project either. Like this, everything was just <laughs> sucked into this maw to, to make sure that Google had been re-secured. It was, it was a, 
uh, Aurora is the name of the is the name of the, the event that happened. And if anybody does a, a search for Aurora China Google security incidents, they will get all of the articles that exist in the world. But that was a project that I ended up being part of. Uh, that was exciting and interesting, but um, I can't remember what they're public. You got like the Men in Black Flash when you uh, <laughs> when you left the project. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's lots of it out there, um, and people have done a great job of, of articulating the narrative. And I don't, I don't want to ruin it for people. Basically, like there's some really great infrastructure work was done there, and I don't, I don't want to half ass it ten years later. Let's uh, let's back up even further. Uh, we chatted the other day, and you mentioned that you had got your start going for a physics major. This isn't the yeah. first time that I've heard this on the podcast. I mean, so, let's face it. I was I wasn't a physics person for very long. Um, okay. So I I I failed first year physics, uh, and at the time you were allowed to compensate a single. You were allowed to compensate if you if you failed an exam, but you got really high in another exam. They're like, we'll we'll let you into second year. It'll be okay. Yeah. And I had gotten I think a very close to a perfect score in the computing exam, and I had done incredibly poorly in four physics exams, and they were like, okay, we'll let you into second year. Um, don't ever do that again. And in second year, I completely failed to do anything at all. Yeah, I used I used the university purely as a way of having access to computing infrastructure. Uh, and I went off and worked in Intel in their initially their desk side support and then server support and fab support and production line support and stuff like that. That's part of how I grew. But I think one of the things that we we didn't realize at the time, or I didn't realize at the time. So I started school in '95 in physics in Dublin City University. And we thought all of the grown-ups were idiots because how could you not know any more than we did about the internet? And what we didn't realize was that the commercial internet had hit like that year, like 95 is the first year of the commercial internet. You weren't allowed to pay for an internet connection before then. And so it was this really early, only three or four years before had anybody had an opportunity to do anything on this. And all these people were, were grown-ups with real jobs. And we weren't, we were students who were in the process of failing out of a physics degree. And so a bunch of us learned how to do all types of cool stuff. Uh, one of the interesting things that came out of Dublin universities or Irish universities at the time was this idea of a networking society. Uh, I was in Redbrick, which is still there, uh, which is a great society that's been there for coming up on 25 years. And it, um, it gave us email addresses and chat and everything else, very similar to the original concept for Facebook without the surveillance state aspects. <laughs> and what it was very interesting for was there was a bunch of folks who had gotten interested in and were, were given kind of shell access on Unix machines through this. And the university at the time was giving you an email address, which was your student number assigned at random to the host name of the university. So my, my, my student number when I started, or my, my email address when I started was 95405470 at talka.dcu.ie. And so the <laughs> bit where we would give you any string at redbrick.dcu.ie made, meant that you were the much better email infrastructure. And so you ended up with these 19 and 20 year olds who were running um, email and chat for thousands of people. They were the largest university society. And this was an incredible training ground for infrastructure and re reliability folks as they then went into industry. And you have folks who have gone on to be in Google and Amazon and Reddit, in Twitch, in Twitter, in Facebook and Amazon. Like, like on my first day when I started at Google, there were six alum from DCU who, who I'd known through the networking society already on the systems team. You can walk in on the first day and have six people say hello to you and then turn to the recruiter and ask the recruiter, is there anybody I should be introducing you to? Is a very strange way to start your first day in the office. Like it was that, that was part of it. Uh, so my friend physics did, physics provided me with almost no background except very useful accounts on a set of computers. And the idea was at the time, because when I was starting, it was pre-internet, was that I wanted to go work out how to use computers. But if you did an IT degree or a computing degree, there was a reasonable chance you were going to go do computing for a company and the company was going to have a few hundred staff and that's the biggest computers you were ever going to need. And so the universities and physics departments had reasons to have really big iron. And so that was one of the reasons I went into physics. But 
18 months later, two years later, you're in a pinpoint where Hotmail exists and Gmail exists and Search exists and Google and, and, and AltaVista. And all of a sudden, if you're providing services to the entire world, that's bigger than the university or all of the universities in a country. And so you have this real disconnect that now you can be into computers for computer stake and still have a great reason to really understand the infrastructure at scale. That would not have been true. Like maybe in the US, you've got enough national laboratories and, and that that you'd be able to get into it from a, from a purely operations perspective. But for the rest of the world, not so much. And particularly for a rock off a rock off the edge of Europe. So there's no direct line connection between physics and software engineering. It was more just the fact that you got into into using larger scale computing hardware. I'm, yeah, I mean, for for me, it was a case, for me it was originally a case that physics was going to be a pathway because you had to do modeling and stuff, and so that way I would have to learn how to use computers to do a thing rather than just learning how computers worked. And as it turned out. A seventeen-year-old me was completely wrong, and that the thing I was interested in was how computers worked, and so um, it was useful mostly because the uh, account you get given on the first day in the university gives you access to more computing power than you ever had in your life. Because I didn't grow up with a PC in my house or any of those things, right? Yeah. So fast forwarding in time, past your time at Google, I'm guessing there's a note about, as mentioned in your bio the Ebola response in West Africa. Did you actually go to West Africa for a while? I was in Sierra Leone for, for a month during the crisis, which was a lot, uh, was my summary. Yeah. Uh, so um, so just to give you some background, uh, what we did was a thing that up until two years ago, I had to explain what it was, but I don't have to do that anymore. We did a thing <laughs> called contact tracing. Uh, it turns out that everybody knows what contact <laughs> tracing is now. So... Sierra Leone, uh, which was, I think, the second country to be hit, I think it, it was originally Nigeria was the beginning, uh, had, was one of four or five countries that were hit in West Africa by Ebola in, I think, 2015. I moved to Berlin to be part of a great team run by a, a group called eHealth Africa. And we proceeded to deploy using AWS and um, offline first web apps, a bunch of contact tracing uh, software across these these places uh, and the idea was that if there was a chance you had been in contact with somebody who had Ebola go home we'll send you food stay in your house and we're sure you don't have Ebola uh, and the diagnostics for, for Ebola are really straightforward if you're still alive a week later you didn't have Ebola <laughs> not that complicated it's, so horrible, but it's not complicated um, and so there was a lot of, it was a very, it was an easy way to get up in the morning, but it was very stressful. Okay. I've never been like, like the alarm goes off and you're like, got to go to work. People are actually dying. Right? It's really easy to go to the office. It's never been an easier place, but you're in a position where um, you have challenges that you've just never thought of. Like it was my first job after Google and I got there and we were running uh, one of the country's infrastructure off a single AWS EC2 instance backed up, it was a catch DB, backed up to another host. Very robust, very reliable, just worked, very good. And I was horrified, right? For Google, you were used to being able to lose, like you can lose half of any of your data center and another data center and still continue without anybody noticing was the bar you had been set, right? So you were used to deploying like 16X the hardware and it was bulletproof and that was the mind that, you, that they had set. And I was having a moment on like the first day or second day. And I think it was Lutz turned to me on the, the side the guy I was working with and said, look, that EC2 instance is the most reliable thing in our stack. In order for someone to do a report, they have to have gone out to visit somebody who might have a Ebola with a mobile phone that was charged, get there, or usually on a bike or some local, some local transport, get back, have the internet locally be working, have the power locally be working, have enough internet and power to have charged their phone and then successfully backhaul it out of the country at which point it goes on the EC2 instance. If it's on the EC2 instance, like it's locked in, it's it's the most reliable thing we've ever seen, right? Like, uh, and that was such a mindset shift. It was incredibly positive and interesting and good to do, but it was an insane mindset shift. So like one of the first things I did, this was 2015, I installed a Nagios on a set of, a set of uh, hosts right after. And I can actually see James 
Googling the phrase Nagios because it's not something anybody in the last 15 years has needed to think about. You're and right, Nagios was an on-premises a learning system, right? Pre your data dogs and pre honeycomb and pre all these things. You want to monitor hosts and tell, have the hosts tell you how much memory they have and all that stuff. And because we were, we couldn't reliably get internet connectivity and the internet connectivity we could get was not very reliable from remotest Sierra Leone to Freetown and even less reliable from Freetown out of the country. The best thing we could do initially was go back 10 or 15 years and deploy old ideas so that we could understand what parts of our network were up on any given time and what parts of our, what odd hosts were up on any given time. Because it turns out power in these, uh, in our, in our locations was more lo- reliable in the places we were deployed than they were in the rest of the country because we had generators and we had good money and we were able to do those things, but they still weren't perfect. And our data was much less reliable. And my favorite story from this time is that we had one um, one office that would lose connectivity every Sunday and would get it back every Monday. And I could not work out what was going on. And I had like centralized log and kind of remoted into this site and the local router is up and the hosts are up. And so it's not a case of like the last person out on Saturday turns it off and the first person out on Monday turns it on. I've interviewed everybody in the building. Like nobody has, nobody's touching it, can't work it. And the uptime says that it's working. I just lose connectivity to it for like a 18 to 22 hour period. And eventually by interviewing folks and talking to people on the ground, I work out that this office is in the most remote part of Sierra Leone that we help. And it's not that our office is losing power. It's that our network connection goes via our least line network connection, which was actually a, a microwave link, was going via the cellular links. And one of the cellular towers that we relied on was so remote that it wasn't worth paying someone to go out with gas on a Sunday to pay, to put money, put the gas in the jenny. Because there's so few people with any money in that bit of the country that connecting phone calls in that bit of the country isn't worth doing on a Sunday. And so that, that every Sunday, Whatever time, like whatever number of hours after they put a le- put uh, gas in the Jenny on on the generator on Saturday, it would kill, it would die. And on Monday morning, when Bob, the guy who puts gas in the Jenny, showed up and put gas in the Jenny, you'd get internet again. And in that way, the Jenny, you know, <laughs> one of your intervening steps just wouldn't have any power. And it's a funny story, but like if you try debugging that from a chair in Berlin, it's a, it's a, it's like they're you're, you're, you're like Agatha Christie yeah. has nothing on me. Like it's it's hilarious. I had the opportunity to go to Kenya and if people think that rolling power outages are bad in like California or wherever we have them in the U S and the rest of the world, it's fairly bad. in in Africa, like we're talking, the power may go out for like 10 hours and you may get it back or it might be another 24 hours and there's no indication when it will come back. Sure. I mean, to speak out here, I mentioned this to you before. I went back and did a, a master's degree in international relations. There's a big difference between the colonized country losing power for 10 hours because everything of value has been taken from that country and the colonizer country losing power for X number of hours. Right? Like, but California should have power. Somebody write that down. <laughs> we had this, uh, just like being able to test on the ground and how it's different. We were using a piece of software called PouchDB and PouchDB is very similar to Couch, CouchDB Couchbase, only it's a local implementation. And so it allows you to do an offline first web app uh, that talks to a local instance of a JSON database and then periodically syncs those documents up into the, the cloud. Um, and we were using that for a vaccine trial, the Ebola vaccine trial that we were part of in 2015. And we tested it. We tested it in Berlin and it worked fabulously well. Um, we uh, we were clever. We used the 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 Chrome extension kind of connection tools to drop the perceived data speed, so it would be uh, like twenty k or five k a second or something, rather than the gig or whatever we had in the office. And it was a little slower, but it worked. We're okay. That's fine. And then we sent out some people with that app to Freetown, and we almost caused an actual riot. So it turns out there was a bug in that particular uh, part of PageDB where instead of syncing only the changes it had not already synced, it synced everything it had seen so far. And this has this fabulous pathological case where the first one works, the second one works, the third one works, 
And it only stops working when you exceed the bandwidth available. And so in a vaccination center in Sierra Leone, in, in a pretty remote place, they got like two phones, 25, 30 people in each. And all of a sudden, vaccine registration stops working. And to get across uh, the premise here, we were paying people to vaccinate them because it turns out if you're trying to vaccinate folks in the developing world against diseases that are prevalent in the developing world, you need to pay them for their time, right? This is not, we can show up at a factory or I'll get permission from my boss to be part of the vaccine trial and it won't affect me in any way. People have been traveling for half a day, a day to get there. It's a huge undertaking on their behalf. You have to pay them for it. And our payment infrastructure is tied to this bug. And no matter what oh, no. we do, we can't replicate it in Dublin. So eventually, lots of logs and, and various things to do. We work out what the problem is. And of course, the thing that is the problem, the bandwidth isn't, isn't enough to get the app, is identical to the problem that we can't ship them a fix. Because we, the, we can't update the website and then get them to get a new piece of it. So we literally have to send somebody from headquarters with two phones with the fresh fork of the code out across Freetown to get there um, while we're on the phone with a, in, in Berlin with increasingly panicked people going, they're, they're not taking, we're not giving you the money because we can't register this phone. Because all the money was being done electronically. It was all being done as a, uh, whatever their local e-cash was. Uh, yeah. And uh, that, that, is, that is probably the, the, one, of the, one of the scarier software bugs I've ever been part of. Because you've got folks who are reliant on your software and some angry locals who are not happy about what you've just done to them. And from your perspective outside, you're like, yeah, no, you should be angry. That's, that's a totally legitimate thing to be angry about. I have no idea how to help you. Everything was fine. We got them a replacement code. It was an amazing piece. It was one of the, uh, it was one of the first times I worked with a great product manager who really understood his product. And so the, uh, the kind of the being able to understand exactly what was going wrong was, was easier from an infrastructure perspective because I was working with him. Fantastic moment of growth afterwards. In the moment, it scared the hell out of me. Man, pay bugs are no joke. I, I come from a background of payroll software. And one thing I've learned over the years is the worst software bugs, the worst thing you can do is to mess with people's pay. <laughs> yeah. as, someone, as someone who has an accent in his first name, a space in his second name, and an apostrophe in his address, I am personally a stress test of any payroll system I'm added to. Yeah, so... A few years ago, I actually worked on a project called the Hospital Run, and it had a very similar uh, offline first approach for basically physicians in third world countries. And so they would go out with like tablets, they would collect a bunch of information, they would do an exam, etc. And then when they got back to the office, it would uh, upload back to like their central uh, hospital run database. So it's really interesting to hear that technology like years later. I'm sure maybe it just happened organically, but it sounds extremely similar to, to what you were deploying I mean, I mean, earlier. Rural, rural middle America at the time would have had very similar rural uh, Sierra Leone challenges, right? Like just if you have no backhaul data, then, then that's it. I don't want to give a shout out like Hoodie, uh, who were the crowd, uh, Neighborhood Hoodie is the group, uh, who were the, the developers that were, we were working with in eHealth. Lena Reinhardt, I think, was the CEO at the time, and, and Jan uh, Jan L on on Twitter was the was kind of I think CTO, and they they did some really great work um, bootstrapping that team, and it was an amazing team to work with. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Stanza. Uh, thanks to you for asking. Um, so Stanza is there's a chance that I know most junior person on the Stanza team. Uh, so we've got a lot of folks who've been working uh, uh, on. Um, large-scale infrastructure for hyperscalers and for very large companies for a very long time. And what we want to do is to make it easier to build reliable systems, reliable services. Um, and the reliability should be seen at the point of consumption. So it's not as much that we are chasing nines for any given service, but that the user experience is reactive in the way that we have currently got services that react well to uh, moving to tablet or moving to mobile phone, this is reactive to individual services not being reliable. So what we do is we facilitate you adding circuit breaking and back pressure at the application tier rather than the network tier. Uh, so at this point, I'm used to being able to fall back on a demo that's very visual. So on a podcast, it will, this will be a bit of an exciting challenge for me. Yeah, but if, you think about, if you think about going to, say, Netflix, and there's a recommendation um, engine that says, 
uh, number one in your hometown or number one for Tiernan. And then you have a search and you have a playback and then you have the ability to spend money that you want to register to, to, spend, to, to pay for something. In, in Netflix's internal accounting, being able to pay, pay them, being able to play a video and be able to search a video are all more important to them in a moment than making sure that the recommendations for you are top shelf right now. And so if they have some type of computing budget constraint or an API constraint or a services constraint, and they don't want to run as much of stuff, they'll be able to prioritize A over B or over C. And so you can do things like, well, actually, let's say, use the cached version for the country that person's in or the city that person's in rather than that. Another example that we have is let's imagine you've got exactly the same setup where you've got a recommendations carousel, a search, and a, a credit card checkout, and they're all backed off the Stripe API, right? So you've got a, the Stripe is in, has control of your, uh, what you've got in stock and all the SKUs you've got in stock, and also all of your credit card transactions and all of your search. Again, the individual uh, recommendations are not as important as being able to spend money, which is not as important, or which is more important than being able to search. And what you can do is you can choose to have those individual apps either gray out or perform a different different um, configuration during stress. So rather than uh, hit the back end every time, use a cached result. Uh, rather than hit the back end in this moment, say, render a spinner and try again in a minute. What you want to be able to do is provide a graceful degradation so the user is always able to do the thing that you as a designer of the software thinks is the most important thing for that software. Uh, so we've got uh, an SDK. We've got, we're, we're currently soliciting for partners. If you go to stanza.systems, if you're interested in what we're talking about, we've got full documentation and a bunch of breakdowns there, including a video demo that probably makes more sense than me explaining this on the fly on kind of a podcast. No, I completely got it. So I feel okay. like you're sort of on the bleeding edge of SRE and that you're, we're going to more like graceful degradation instead of, you know, seeing the things are broken and, and making patches. So looking ahead, what do you envision the future of SRE is like? Are there any trends that you're seeing, like any predictions you can make about how that landscape is changing in the coming years? So what I find is really interesting is that serverless kind of showed up and is really exciting. And then folks get big enough on it, and then they seem to desperately want to migrate off, right? Because they, 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 it gets it, it, it absolutely is enough to build you an amazing proof of concept, and then it begins to hit some limits. Um, so I'm interested to see where, and that's amazing, right? So that, I don't want I don't want to come across as something I'm saying negatively, but um, and so the ability to get to that scale before you need to hire your first SRE or your first person who really cares about infrastructure is huge. I think that that leads people in a sudden desperate need to understand how their service works much later than it did it happened previously right and and that's always been true right like uh, folks these days don't need to understand linux internals and that's a good thing right but instead of it going from you don't need to understand how the switch works or how linux internals works or how the file system's operating we're now at a point where Oh, my deployments take longer than thirty seconds, and so I my my in flight HTTP requests show show five hundred spikes. So I need to understand how to do graceful uh, rolling restarts or any of those capabilities. What I find really interesting is that that stuff is only going to get more mature, and so the point at which you need to do really serious infrastructure work, I think, migrates out further. I think that um, there's a really interesting. One of the lessons that was taken from the Accelerate book and the Dora metrics that came out a couple of years ago was that you have this great intersection between shipping code quickly makes developers happy and makes your site more reliable. And so as metrics go, they have become the real watchword for folks who are thinking about reliability in a, in a, in a serious way at kind of all the SRECon conferences and everything else. And so being able to think about you want to optimize your teams to be able to make the smallest meaningful change as fast as possible, and then to be able to undo that change at least as quickly, because that means that your developers can operate with confidence. They can offer, operate at speed. They can be able to turn an idea to a vision, to an execution really quickly. But in the event that they make a mistake, 
the rollback is, is much less painful for your users than you would be otherwise. Obviously, for uh, folks who've graduated beyond that um, bottled st- st- stage, things like Stanza, I think, are hugely important. Being able to do graceful degradation of your services, being able to do things like prioritize one request over another, being able to delegate the authority. And this is something that Stanza does that I haven't really seen in too many other places. Delegate the authority to the person writing the feature what to decide what happens when the service that that feature depends on isn't present, right? So either you're dependent on information from a SaaS or you're dependent on uh, an internal database. If we can give you a signal, which is you don't get to use that data source today, or you don't get to use it, you get to make a decision, right? Do I not render the pane at all? Do I render cached data? Do I render data that's geographically localized, but not localized to the user, right? That's all, all. That's always going to be a decision that the person who wrote the feature is able to make a better decision about than me as the person running the internal service is going to be able to make a decision. Like, from my perspective, I serve a 429, which is like, go away for now. And that's not, that's, I mean, it saves my life and my service is still up and that's good. But if I want to be able to do the next level up from that, which is in the event of this happening, please do these other things. That like, uh, defense in depth and defense with intelligence, I think is something that we're really going to get more maturity in over time. I personally think it's really cool. I mean, I've worked on many systems. I've had to do many like try, catch, retries and fallback logic. Anything to make that process easier, more bulletproof is like definitely welcome in bigger enterprises. I bet. I, I enthusiastically say, I enthusiastically send anybody with a similar, uh, experience to James and in fact, James himself to our documentation, uh, because <laughs> um, being able to construct your features and prioritize your features and make the policy decisions based on which feature is more reliable than the other is I think a really transformative thing, particularly for any type of large scale distributed system. Ternan, so you've been in SRE world for a long time. How do people get into SRE and if if they're on the job market right now, if they're thinking about a career change, they like the aspects of SRE. Sure. So the an SRE is not a wizard. There's somebody who cares about how this stuff works, right? And so in any given team of people, there's the person who's willing to say, the build is too slow, the deployment doesn't take, isn't quickly enough, we can't roll back, or we don't have a good story around being able to do data migrations. Being that person on, a, on an existing team is an amazing prep for, am I going to want to do this longer term? And it will make everybody on your team more productive. Now, there is a, a thing to be careful there, which is you don't want to become someone who is the only person who has that knowledge, which leads to the other thing, which is very good to do as an SRE, which is document and ensure that anything that is of any real importance doesn't just live between your ears. So for me, I think it's all about understanding the tools being able to not just be a customer of a thing, but to understand what what the ramifications of using a tool are. Um, if someone's at home and they're a software engineer, there's plenty of amazing uh, speakers and writers. Uh, SRECon has um, always been open access. They've, they've uh, used Nix as, an, as a fabulous organization has been going for years. And so all of the SRECon talks are up there and out there. Uh, SRE, as she was spoke by... James, somebody from, from as the as the opening keynote from last year's SRECon in your in Amsterdam was a great kind of overview of the kind of history of how thinking about it in this programmatic way has grown up over time, and I think would be a great kind of framing for someone to think about these things. So it's all about like being willing to get your hands dirty, being willing to think about from a systemic perspective how to make how we operate computing better, rather than it's not about making a single loop run more effectively. It's about us being able to schedule that and understand why it will or will not work. Well, being able to resilient to a schedule not working, being resilient to somebody having to take uh, time and not being able to answer a page, right? We have to understand the interaction between um, computers and the people who people who run them. And I think that that's that's what you do. Yeah, uh, there are great communities out there. There are lots and lots of local meetups in most most major cities. Um, spoiler: almost anybody speaking at a, a at a at an SRE at a conference talk is probably recruiting. If you if you wander around and say. I'm interested in I'm interested in being part of part of your reliable infrastructure. That amazing things can happen, but they're the, they're the types of things I would say. Obviously, um, the more you know about this stuff, the easier it will be to get hired. 
with these days, a lot of the interviews between a traditional SWE and an infrastructure SWE are very, very similar. You're, you're being asked very similar questions. You'll have a, a, a greater focus on networking and a greater focus on things like Kubernetes in the infrastructure thing. But if you've done the reading around whatever the, word, the buzzwords were in the job spec, and you're honest about what your expectations are and your your uh, what your willingness to grow is, then I think you can you can do a good interview in a lot of these cases. That's awesome. I think that's going to be extremely helpful for anybody interested in that world. I'm at, I'm at NYC Dubliner on Twitter, and if I, I, my DMs are open. So if I if I can be more specifically useful, if anybody's looking to to join SRE uh, or get involved in those type of things, give me a shout. Um, uh, SRE SREcon US has, currently has an open call for papers. You know, if you want to submit something, give me a shout. I'll help you put, put things in the right shape. That's awesome. All right, give Tiernan a shout if you're uh, if you're interested in the space. I'll uh, I'll have his socials in the podcast description. So Tiernan, as we wrap up, if you could give yourself uh, your younger self one piece of advice, if you were starting into your journey of the world of engineering, what would it be? So the computers are just computers. Is the is an incredibly prosaic thing today, but we what we're saying what we're doing is very similar to what we were doing 30 years ago. And so be less worried about um, holding on to knowledge. So if you, if you become an expert in a thing and you have an opportunity to go work in another thing, do the work in the other thing. Don't worry about not being an expert anymore. If you have an opportunity to go be a manager and you're excited by that prospect, go be a manager. The same enthusiasm and drive that got you to become an expert in the technology that you became the first time will serve you well again two years later, right? I and mean, even when... It's gone from being Samba to uh, REST to gRPC or whatever that whatever the evolution is in your particular part of the stack. You'll show up 10 years later and it'll be, oh, that's exactly the same, but we changed all the terms and it's 30% faster. Great. And then you'll go back to work, right? And so I think that there's a, a big fear about not having your finger on the pulse that is not as well, that's not, that, that, that's not worth having in a lot of cases. Uh, and the other thing I would say to a younger me is that I was really, really afraid of uh, programming and that programming was a, a magic a magic trick. I, I spent most of my time being completely comfortable with the idea that I could learn all about operating systems and all about networking and all about all these other archaic things that people were afraid of. And for some reason, I thought writing code was clearly uh, the, the remit of special wizards. Uh, and I could have done with learning that lesson about 15 years earlier. Sound advice, sound advice. All right. Uh, one last question for you, Tiernan. I hope you're ready. It's an Irish-themed question. If you owned a castle and subsequently and unfortunately died, what gift would you give the people for kissing a stone on your castle, and where would you hide this magical stone? Subtitles. Tiernan is trying to come up with a polite response. So, my heritage. Um, so, Deberka, the Deberka Castle was Cashel, just the, the Rock of Cashel. Beautiful. That bit of the family is not my bit of the family. My bit of the family is terraces and kind of very kind of very urban uh, people working working in working in factories in the city is, is who, who my people are. So I think I would bequeath uh, infinite bo- infinite broadband uh, and a big button to press at the beginning because I, I I get very confused whenever I get outside kind of the, the ring road of the city. I, I'm afraid I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not as, as stereotypically rural as would be useful for the app to answer this question. But you know, offended more people than you have. So we, we should get out this time pretty soon. <laughs> Thanks for being your time, Jeff. Anything we haven't touched on? Anything you want to mention? Shout out. No, I think it's traditional to only remember them after I've hung up. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Tiernan, for joining me and. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to the James from Montana podcast. If you want to support this production, see more content like this, visit jamesfrommontana.com and consider signing up. Thanks again, Tiernan.